But we, uh, thanks very much for for coming, uh, despite the um, surprise blackout. Uh, I'm Nick Monfort, and I'm pleased to introduce the third speaker in the Cognitive Dimensions of Media series. It's a series organized by my colleague, Professor Fox Harrell, and sponsored by his Imagination, Computation, and Expression Laboratory, the ICE Lab, here at MIT. Mark Turner is Institute Professor and Professor of Cognitive Science at Case Western Reserve University. He's a pioneer in cognitive science, especially approaches to understanding human creativity. He discusses the roles of narrative, metaphors, and blending of concepts as fundamental for human cognition. He's been a fellow of the Institute for Advanced Study, the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, the National Humanities Center, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, among other institutions. He's the founding director of the Cognitive Science Network. His most recent book publications are 10 Lectures on Mind and Language and two edited volumes, The Artful Mind, Cognitive Science and the Riddle of Human Creativity and Meaning, Form, and Body, edited with Faye Peril and Vera Tobin. His other publications include Cognitive Dimensions of Social Science, The Way We Think About Politics, Economics, Law, and Society, and The Literary Mind, The Origins of Thought and Language. Today he'll discuss how television news produces uh, provides a window into the cognitive processes that are commonly deployed to frame, explain, and reason about events. To achieve the intended results of media news, however, journalists and others whose voices appear in media must reconstruct events carefully, identifying possible windows of missed interventions and specific casual forks realistically. Please join me in welcoming, here to present his talk, The News as Social Process for Improving Society, Part 2, Mark Turner. Uh, I'd like to thank the Comparative Media Studies and uh, the ICE Lab for bringing me, and I'd really like to thank you for sitting in darkness. <laughs> uh, this is going to give me an opportunity for a story I can dine out on forever, <laughs> namely, inside the Media Lab, to give a talk on multimedia with an infinity of network TV news clips and other multimedia uh, examples. Um, there's no power except reserve power. <clears throat> However, since one of the points of this talk is that human communication has always been multimodal, that what we're doing right now is fully multimodal, and that multimedia exploits basic mental operations for multimodal communication that have been around at least 50,000 years, um, I have no excuse. I should be able to pantomime, <laughs> uh, illustrate, narrate, and give my talk. Uh, in fact, voice is a technology as much as the technologies in this room. Gesture is a technology for communication. So, so here we go. Uh, you didn't know that the Rolling Stones were the cutting edge of the cognitive science of the media. Ah. This lyric will be crucial to the talk later on, pleased to meet you. To whom is he speaking? 
Now, Francis Steen, uh, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at uh, UCLA, gave an earlier talk um, in which he gave a technical overview. This is his talk. Uh, television has been the main form of uh, uh, the, the public sphere for a couple of generations. Right? So we're starting this, um, what we call the Red Hen Lab. Red Hen Lab. Now, if you, at some other moment, uh, type Red Hen Lab into your favorite search engine, it will come up first. And if you click on it, you can see on the Google site a complete technical overview of the Red Hen Lab. You can see a videotape of a talk by me given at USC about the Red Hen Lab and what it does. You can see a paper on multimodal construction grammar that uh, Francis Steen and I wrote. And you can hear the podcast of Francis Steen's previous lecture about the Red Hen Lab with the slides that he used back in, uh, in November. Um, the sorts of things that he talked about then, uh, one, the worldwide network of researchers who contribute to the Red Hen Lab. We capture international TV network news. Uh, in particular, we capture broadcasts that have closed caption or teletext so that we can search the language. We're able to crack out the text, put it all into time-stamped registration. Um, we now do things like optical character recognition and the text boxes that are on the screen. SAIL, the Signal Analysis and Interpretation Lab at USC, is beginning to, do, uh, beginning to apply its technology for speech analysis to the audio stream. We've developed a number of search engines so that when you find a certain kind of construction, a grammatical construction, find by doing regular expressions or looking for other kinds of tags. When you find it, you can either export all those hits to a comma-separated value file and then dump it into a statistical software package like R. So the point of this is not to sit and watch television. It's to study the way in which the communication patterns operate and to use computational and statistical techniques to help you do that. Or you can look at it like a human. Once you find a hit, you can click on, that's got the right kind of pattern you want. You can click on the little thumbnail right next to it and see instantly the human being actually perform in multimodal variety the communication that, uh, that you have found with gestures and so on, diagrams. Uh, it's, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, um, 200,000 hours of TV. We ingest another 110 hours of international network news a day. The robots analyze it all. This is all completely uh, robotic. It's housed by the University of California, Los Angeles Library. We're able to do this because Section 108 of the Copyright Act of the United States gives libraries the right, notwithstanding anything else in law, to record audiovisual news programs and have an archive and loan them because this is regarded as publicly necessary uh, information, right? So we have a lot of people participating. We, I pioneered a, a capture station in Norway when I was there last year with my family. That's been moved to Denmark. 
uh, where we capture all of the Norwegian uh, channels plus some of the German. We also get uh, one French television station. We now have a capture station in southern Spain. We're working with the Russian Academy of Science and the Institute for Technical uh, 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 Mechanical and Optical Research in, uh, in St. Petersburg to capture Russian and, uh, and so on. He also reviewed um, a project that is, Francis Steen reviewed a project that he and I have to analyze the way in which network news internationally covered the, a particular incident, the Honors Bearing Brevik incident in July of 2011. I was living, this was a mass murder, explosion, of, uh, bomb downtown outside of the parliament, um, and the mass murder of 69 mostly teenage uh, victims on an island uh, just outside of uh, Oslo. I was there at the time. I'd been there for three days. And before I went, I said, well, Francis, we need a Norwegian event that we uh, can study to see how the different uh, international network news uh, teams covered this. What's, what are the national differences? Um, but we looked at the, in the Red Hen, arch, arch, Red Hen archive, and there wasn't one, um, except Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, but this one was instantly covered worldwide by everybody and continued to be covered for an entire year. By the time I left Oslo, uh, the trial was over. Uh, 250 international <coughs> news agencies were certified to cover the trial and were camped downtown in Oslo. So it gave us a, uh, a, a, a tragic but natural event uh, to... Uh, uh, to test our various hypotheses and technologies on. He also talked about, in connection with this project, um, the way in which the network news is largely not about what's happening. You know, you always hear, here's the news, breaking news, here's what's happening. But in fact, mostly the news covers what didn't happen, what isn't happening, what hasn't happened, why it hasn't happened. Who's to blame? Who gets the credit? How do we assess culpability? Okay, now, today what I'm going to talk about is the cognitive underpinnings of this research program. Um, as I mentioned, uh, our working hypothesis is that part of the reason these media are so immersive is because they converge upon basic mental operations that are uh, uh, powerful for cognitively modern human mi minds, where I mean uh, by cognitively modern, sort of anybody, any neurotypical over the last 50,000 years, maybe longer. Um, I'll talk about one uh, phenomenon of the cognitively modern mind in particular. That's going to be blended joint attention. If I have time, I'll also talk about the construction of counterfactuals and hypotheticals. And then there's one I probably won't get to, which is story as a mental operation for organizing the world into little narrative chunks, which we're extremely good at. 
and in particular storytelling. So blended joint attention, storytelling, and counterfactuals and hypotheticals. Okay. So what's joint attention? Well, you know what joint attention is. Cognitive science has, for the last 30 years, uh, been studying this. And there, of course, have been many antecedent traditions of research. In joint attention, two people are both attending to something that's in their perceptual fields. That's the most basic kind. And they know that they are both attending. And they both know that they are both attending. And they know that they are engaged with each other by attending to something. Right? They look at each other. They look at the thing. They look back and forth. Right? This seems to be, we, we, we have exceptional capabilities for this. We are off the charts relative to other species in joint attention. It's crucial, as studied by Tomasello and others, for learning in infants, but also learning uh, more, more broadly throughout, throughout life. Um, in this scene, you don't actually have to be communicating, but we typically do. We do things like point. Pointing is a very complex phenomenon. There's a big debate on whether chimpanzees point at all. There's a whole book called Pointing. The answer is, the superficial answer is, no, they don't really. They do something similar, but they, they don't have the fully human ability to point in a joint attentional sort of way. Uh, and when we communicate, we might just be like raising an eyebrow to indicate a disposition or something like this. Now, this seems completely and utterly natural to us. It's, in fact, a kind of uh, spectacular performance. Almost everything that we can do that's really powerful is below the horizon of consciousness. Consciousness is a very thin little read. Most of what in consciousness seems to be the nature of our thought is, as cognitive science has demonstrated again and again and again, wrong and demonstrably, demonstrably wrong. We have little cartoons, and we shouldn't get rid of them because they're useful. They keep us, they keep us going, right? Um, and for these kinds of operations, it typically seems to us that it's nothing, that it's easy. You know, how do you see? What do you mean, how do I see? I open my eyes, right? Of course, it takes... 50% of neocortex is implicated in vision. Fabulous amounts of computation going on just to assign color to the world, to create uh, entities against backgrounds, but we're just not aware of it. Similarly, in joint attention, it doesn't seem as if we're doing any work. Um, well, now, classic joint attention is where you're communicating about something that's sort of directly in the perceptual field, all right? And I have lots of pictures here, which I won't show you, <laughs> of kids pointing things to each other, of people looking in each other's eyes and then pointing back to things, right? This is a, this is a big field of study in cognitive science. What I want to talk about is um, the fact that an awful, an awful lot of language uh, has been developed in order to manage and conduct joint attention. Here, now, you, I, this, that, pointing, right? These things are called deictics and indexicals. They're useful. Notice, what does here mean? Depends on who says it and where. It's a term that is specified for joint attention. It's really, really useful. Um, much of language is 
useful. Many of the systems of language seem to be especially useful for the creating and the managing of, of joint attention, right? But now, now I want to talk about a second basic mental operation. So hold joint attention right there. And now I'm going to talk about blending. And then I'm going to talk about blended joint attention. It's really blended joint attention I want to talk about. I think you all know what joint attention is. You've got it. Now let's do blending, okay? Um, <clears throat> you can find all, out, all about this at uh, blending.stanford.edu or at markturner.org, where all of your questions will be answered. You'll, but no, seriously, you will see hundreds of publications on blending across many, many different fields, from uh, mathematics to theology to linguistics to media studies. Um, okay, well, what's a blend? <clears throat> uh, suppose somebody's in a wedding party, and he's an usher. And uh, he's seating people. But while he's engaged in that story, he's living that story and conducting his actions and so on, he's remembering another mental space, another little array of stuff. He's remembering that he was diving with his girlfriend off Cabo San Lucas three weeks before. Now, his girlfriend's not at the wedding. Okay? This is already a major problem in cognitive science. I could go through it. Why should you be able to call up something that is in conflict with and does not serve? your present purposes, and your action in the present moment. Glenberg has written about this. Deep, deep problem. Uh, why don't you make mistakes, right? But notice, he does not uh, swim down the aisle. He, he breathes normally and talks normally, even though in the other space he's underwater. He does not mistake the bride for a shark. So you can call up two things that are in high conflict. But now you can also connect them. So the girlfriend in one space and the bride in the other can be connected by a frame link, romantic interest. And of course, he in the diving space and he in the wedding space can be connected by an identity connector. These kinds of cross-mental space connectors have been studied in detail. Causation, part whole, well, of course, cause-effect, uh, identity, analogy, disanalogy, representation links, spatial links, temporal links, and so on. There's a, a main set of mental links that, that connects up these different kinds of things. But now comes the remarkable thing, the thing that seems to stop all of other species. He can not only connect these spaces that should never go together, he can, in fact, put them together. So now, in the blend, he starts imagining that right here, he's marrying his girlfriend. He starts to have a little daydream, right? Now, remember, his girlfriend is not here. She's not the bride. But what he's doing is he's taking the bride and the groom from one space. That's a role. And he's taking himself and his girlfriend from the other space and, my, my, and uh, putting those in as the values of the role. And now he runs the blend. He daydreams this. Right? This is a very crazy thing to be doing, except that it's what human beings do all the time. It is the, it's the central component of the cognitively modern human mind. 99.999% of blending is entirely below the horizon of observation, and you don't see it. It's only a few of these pyrotechnic things that let me haul it on stage. So as he's sitting there imagining this, it uh, comes to the point where the officiant says to the girlfriend, 
do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And, and she says, I wouldn't marry him if he were the last man on earth. And suddenly he realizes, where did that come from? That's true. She isn't dedicated to that. He sees now something that he didn't know before. She's just been toying with him. There is no seriousness. He can tell. He's put together things that don't go together and come up with an insight that he then projects back to the spaces uh, that do have reference in reality. This is all over the place. I can say things like, oh, if I were, if I were my brother-in-law, I'd be miserable. He's a stockbroker and living in California, and he has to give up, get up at 5 o'clock in the morning in order to deal with this, the opening of the stock market in New York. Now notice that I'm not miserable, my brother-in-law is not miserable. There's a connection between us, but when I collapse them, now there's emergent property in the blend, emergent structure, misery, that is in not in any of the input spaces. So selective projection to the blend, emergent structure in the blend, and emergent structure in the network. These are new ideas, this, this, the origin of ideas. This blending ability lets us just on the fly come up with new conceptual structure that was not already contained in the things in the mental web that we were trying to consider. It also gives us a compression at human scale of, so that we can carry it around. Something that's actually tractable, something that's manageable for our minds. Why, why is the scope of human thought so vast? Why can people think about endowing uh, the educations of their great-grandchildren? Why can you think about the history of wars that led up to the American colonies and how the Electoral College uh, has a consequence for the past election, right? This, it's, a, it's big news in cognitive science when Santini, the Swedish zoo chimp, seems to store rock, who's always been in the zoo and has the same life every day pretty much, seems to store rocks overnight so he can throw them at the observers, at the visitors the next day. Because, heavens, this seems as if something else is actually planning. Now, maybe not, because he lives the same life every day. It might just be a habit by now. And we're not talking about whether evolutionary biology can build something with downstream consequences. You don't need to know about nutrition in order to get hungry, because evolutionary biology builds hunger as a symptom into the here and now. You don't need to be dreaming about great-grandchildren in order to feel sexual attraction, right? Because evolu evolution in, for beavers, for moths, for mosquitoes, evolution can build things into the present behavior of the organism that have downstream consequences. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is conceiving of them and manipulating them mentally and holding on to these vast ideas. Now here's an example. The ones I've given you so far are pretty pyrotechnic. But here, the last one I'll give you is one that's very, very simple. In your experience of uh, time, not, not of time, but just in your experience of living, there's a day, and then a night, and then a day, and then a night, and then another one, and then another one, and then a day, and then a night, and, right? It just goes on like that. It's, an infinite, it's a potentially infinite sequence, especially if you think, all the way back there to the pre-Cambrian, all the way out there to the heat death of the universe, right? Huge, you can't possibly hold that in mind, right? 
What do you do? Well, you blend all those days by mapping them all to one day. The same. This is a this is a very common generic pattern of blending. There are many such generic patterns where you take all the analogies across a bunch of things and you compress them to one thing, and all the disanalogies and you compress them to change, and then you get emergent structure in the blend. So the cyclic day, unlike any actual day, repeats. No day repeats. Not even in the movie Groundhog Day did a day actually repeat. If you woke up the next morning and it was exactly the same, I mean exactly the same, you'd freak right out. It doesn't repeat. But now the cyclic day is just one day. You can carry it around and it just goes around. It repeats. It's a repeating day. This makes it possible now for us to use standard language we have to say things like, uh, when midnight comes round again, or when dusk comes round again. We do the same thing for the year. Christmas is coming round again. No actual Christmas comes round again, but in the cyclic compression comes round again. And you can say things like, I haven't had my morning coffee. What's my morning coffee? It's a particular thing in my cyclic day. Notice, it's not the coffee that's in any of these input spaces because um, for some of those input spaces, for some days, I don't have any coffee. And it wouldn't be my morning coffee linguistically, it would be this coffee this morning. But my morning coffee is a habitual in the cyclic day, and I can say I haven't had my morning coffee, right? I can say this park closes at dusk. And you don't say, to, if I say that one day, the park closes at dusk, the next day you don't say to me, and what, when does it close today? because you know it closes at dusk, and the cyclic day lets you compress all these days, you don't have to hold the whole network, and expand up to connect to any part of it, and this makes tractable things that otherwise would be intractable. Now, what has this got to do with joint attention? Well, here's the answer, uh, but first let me solidify just a little. In blending, you have some mental spaces, which are little bundles of meaning that you can actually sort of hold and activate because they're small enough. And you can have connections across the identity of part hole, of cause-effect. There are a number of these that have been studied, right? You have selective, very selective projection to the blend. So in the wedding story, I don't bring down the actual bride and groom, right? And you have emergent structure in the blend. And then you have something that's small enough and mentally tractable that you can hold on to and use to connect up to stuff. Mathematics is, in a way, uh, a, a, a long project of creating such blends, such uh, compressed little blends, emergent structure. Sometimes it takes centuries for the right emergent structure to arise. You can't always get the right blend that works. Certainly, this is the case in law. Like, and right now, we're wrestling deeply over intellectual property, which is a blend. But what do we project to it? Um, we're fighting now over what it means to have intellectual property, where real property is uh, one of the inputs. You get emergent structure in the blend, and sometimes it propagates back not to the identical, but to analogous emergent uh, structure in the network. Okay, now, in blended joint attention, Classic joint attention is one of the inputs, but there can be others. So for instance, in classic joint attention, 
we're looking at something we both can see, that blackbird in the tree. That blackbird in the bush <coughs> has red stripes on its wings, right? You look, you see. Great. But now suppose I talk about copyright law. Well, in the blend, copyright law becomes, and we're not deluded by these blends, right? They're things that make it possible to proceed, to organize networks of thought whose scope is otherwise too large for us to grasp. Now in the blend, intellectual property becomes a thing. And we are attending to it. And I am saying things about intellectual property. That's a case of taking a bunch of other mental spaces that have to do with property and intellectual effort and so on, and blending them down, projecting them selectively to the blend. Now we can have joint, blended joint attention about copyright law or intellectual property or something like that, even though it's not here. Next, it doesn't have to be just one person. Suppose you're speaking to a crowd, right? You can bring that person, uh, you can bring the crowd down as it were into the interlocutor or the conversant or the audience, which was this second person. In the TV, uh, you know how this sort of works in things like, well first let me back up just a little and say, joint attention already needs blending because we have ideas of other minds. We're spectacularly good at this kind of social cognition. Now, of course, you have no direct access to anybody else's mind. What you have are indirect things, appearances, things like that. But you know that when you move like that, it hurt, right? And what did you just do with me, right? You know it hurts for you. You project your mindedness. You have an appearance like mine. We can make these connections. You may... you. Create in the blend a mind for me. And then you adjust it. You know, he eats sushi, but he doesn't eat avocado. So his tastes are not exactly like mine. But the, the big bunch of stuff comes down from your knowledge of your mindedness. And so in the blend, now we actually think this is true. It's not that blends are, you know, fictional always. You think that I am minded, right? But it's an emergent property uh, for me. Uh, in the blend, okay? So joint attention already needs the conception of another, but also we need a conception of self. Other species may have signature whistles, like dolphins, recognize their offspring in various kinds of ways. We are able to take, again, it's this disanalogy-analogy connection. I'm very different from the baby that popped out of my mother 58 years ago, right? And all along the way, there have been these huge differences, but there have been analogies. We compress the analogies to one thing, an identity, and the disanalogies to change. So I got certified. I have a PhD, or I can drive a motorcycle, and here's the license to prove it, and things like that. And we know how various all this stuff is in the network. But we're able to carry around a sense of personal identity. Culture seems to require it in some ways, and it invests some uh, language, like Mark Turner, a proper name which is uh, a big investment to try to make certain that you hold on to it, okay? But what I want to talk about are the ways in which actually uh, joint attention is an input to a blend. So when you're talking on, on the phone to somebody, they're not actually there with you. You know that they're in another building. They're in a different 
space. Now you can still use your understanding of joint attention, but you have to blend and adjust it. So even if we're both looking out the window, I can say here comes trouble. If I can rely on you to be able to look out the window and pick out what I'm talking about. But if you say to me, where, I can't say there the way I can in joint attention. So I can project a huge amount of language from joint attention down into the blend and, and use it. And you're familiar from this for, uh, with blended joint attention from like personal letters and writing, right? The person's in another place, you don't know exactly where they are, but you can array all those spaces and project down in the blend. And now, because you know about joint attention, and you have language for running joint attention, now you can project that language down and it doesn't have exactly the same application, but you don't need new language. Well, uh, you know, when Uncle Sam says, I want you for the US Army, it's a poster. Or I've got another example of a poster where a guy is driving in a car, it's a World War II poster, and there's a kind of sketchy Hitler sitting in the passenger seat, it's a convertible. It says, when you drive alone, you drive with Hitler. You ride it with Hitler, right? Okay. I mean, imagine the compression. Of, I'm driving. Somebody's driving, and the gas and the connection, and it's Ohio, and it might, and all the way, all the way to the war in Germany, and it has some effect on the war, and is helping huge, vast uh, connections over time, space, causation, and so on. All gets down, projected down to I'm helping Hitler in my car, right? That's a compression, right? But notice who's this you? It's not a personal you, it's an implied you. And we understand that in the scene of joint attention, there might be somebody looking at the poster. You project that somebody's addressing me, I don't know who. I don't have to believe that that person ever thought that they were addressing me and calling me, me you. They don't really mean a personal you. You have a different notion of you. Um, another example of you that's really useful is impersonal you. So I say something like, on the dark side of the moon you freeze, which is fine, right? I can't say on the dark side of the moon they freeze. It's not a, it's not a substitute. And you could say, well, nobody freezes. I mean, nobody, nobody freezes on the dark side of the moon because nobody's there, right? Notice I can say, in the Precambrian, you couldn't see the sun because of all the steam. Now, there were no people in the Precambrian, right? And you can't go back to the Precambrian. So who's this you? This has been analyzed by Dwight Bollinger and uh, Jeff Lansing as the impersonal you. And it works like this. We make a blend in which there's a focalizer. One way to characterize a situation is to characterize how it would feel in that situation. So there's a focalizer which doesn't, who doesn't have to exist. It's like a decedent in law, all these quasi-agents that don't actually have reference. But you can imagine such a person who doesn't have reference in that situation and what it would feel like, what they would see. And the speaker of the impersonal you is speaking for that focalizer uh, in the blend. Now in the television network news, um, which seems, you know, only to have been here for a very little while. What we have is cognitive underpinning, where it comes from. 
we have another blended joint attention scene. And it's spectacularly effective. Why is this so immersive? Why does everybody from age 2 to 82 watch it? Why is it all over the world? Why is it so effective? I'm a bobo, bohemian bourgeois. People in my demographic tend to pride themselves on not owning TVs or watching it. But all you have to do is ask somebody like me, did you see the clips of 9-11? Did you see the debate zinger? Did you? And they've all seen it. And in all of these buildings that I've been walking around in today and all around the world, there are these big uh, screens that have the news on. Uh, most uh, uh, teenagers get their news from the network news, but on the computer, not from the actual TV. The TV itself turned out to be so last century. The couch potato eating the chips and uh, thumbing through the TV guide turned out to be a cartoon from the 1950s. But the network news is uh, on a viral spiral. Why is that? Well, you can take joint attention, kid pointing something out, saying, now I'm going to show you this wonderful device. Right? You can take jo classic joint attention as one input. Now you know also somebody's in a different space, different people are in different spaces. There's a, a studio, there's long distance technology, there are reporters in the field, blah, blah, just this vast amount of stuff. And what the TV network news has done is create blended joint attention and there's a particular character who runs it, that's the anchor, doesn't have to be that way. Why did TV news create an anchor? Why is this so, is so natural? And that anchor is talking to you and is presenting to you whatever it is that the news is about, right? And calls you you and says things like, here we have a special feature for you now. And that might be recorded and it might be that the anchor doesn't know what the special feature is. So where's this here and when is the now? And who's the for you? Well, all of the language comes down from classic joint attention into that scene. You're not diluted. You, but in the blend, the anchor is looking at you. I'll give you uh, a couple of examples here. This is, this is my lovely diagram showing the linguistic constructions that you already have project down here so you don't need new linguistic constructions. So this is a Norwegian broadcast, <laughs> which is not worth showing you, except he's, he, says, he says, good day, or good afternoon. And he's looking right at you. In the blend, he's looking at you because we blend your eye with the lens of the camera. And this has some, here's one that's a little bigger. So I was going to show you all of these lovely expressions that ought to seem completely ungrammatical and weird because they don't have the meanings that they would usually have. But and these are simple words like here, now, you, I, this. Um, is the anchor introduces you to things and says, here, look at this. 
And frequently they'll say, you see on my left, and of course, for them it's not on the left. For he, and they'll point to it, right? For them it's not actually on the left. It's on an inset screen in your field of vision. So in the blend it is on the person's left, and this legitimates their referring to these kinds of things. This, or something comes up and they say, look at this now, right? And all of this seems completely easy. There's no kind of concern. Typically, it's only the anchor that looks at the camera. And there are some wonderful new emergence constructions. So, for example, when the anchor is talking to the reporter in the field, they'll introduce the reporter, and the reporter might come up, and then the two of them are facing out of the screen, like this, talking. And what you know is that they're looking at each other eye to eye. That's what that means. Now, of course, in the real world, if one person's here and another person is right here looking like this, it means they can't see each other eye to eye. But this is an example of the kind of construction, communicative construction that arises in this space. Um, another one is they're also looking at you. Because when they're looking out at the screen, they're looking at you, but they're also looking at each other. The interesting thing is you never had to be taught these, these very bizarre constructions for understanding what's going on in the TV network news because you're, you're blenders. Now, um, what I would say is that on the linguistic side, whoops, we have been, on the linguistic side, we have been talking about the ground and linguistic terms for referring to things forever. Ron Lanneker, there's a long rhetorical and philological tradition of doing this. What the TV network news has done is show that the ground of communication through blending can be much vaster and yet more manageable than linguistic theory has yet found. So I'll show you this one. Here is going to be an anchor who is going to talk, and two people uh, are going to come up looking out of the screen and she's going to see, say, joining me now. Now, and, and she's also going to say here, none of them's in the same place. This is pre-recorded. You don't know, and you know all of this. You, you know that her now is not your now. And then her face is going to come in in the middle of the screen. Joining me now, Scott Rasmussen, president of RasmussenReports.com and author of The People's Money. Also, Chris Darwell. See, they spread Scott. apart, and she comes in right in the middle. And this looks to you like a completely normal way to start talking uh, about something. And it's um, an example. I have lots and lots of these yous and here's and nows and other kinds of constructions. But what's, what's the big point? Well, joint attention and blending are two really basic, powerful things that human beings have had for as long as we can look at human beings. They come up extremely early in childhood. The Runaway Bunny, the most popular book for two-year-olds, is one set of blends after another. Harold and the Purple Crayon, the most popular book for three-year-olds, is one set of blends after another. There's emergent physics. Harold has a crayon, and when he draws things, it exists. He wants to go on a walk, so he draws a moon, so he'll have light. And then he draws a straight path, and off he sets on his walk. 
And he draws things. He draws apple trees because he's hungry. He eats. He draws a dragon and gets afraid of it. After he's had a big bunch of experience, he wants to get home. And he asks everybody, and you know, he's three years old. He's having an adventure, but you know, he wants to get home because at three, you're adventurous, but you know, you can get a little insecure. And he remembers that from his bedroom, he could see the moon. So how does he get home? Who here is as smart as a three-year-old? Say? Well, he's got the moon. The moon always moves with him. From his bedroom, he could see, yes. Right. He he takes his crayon and he draws the window with the curtains around the moon that he can see. And ipso facto, presto changeo, he's in his room next to his bed. Right? This is locomotion by drawing. It's a kind of physics that's completely contrary to everybody's experience. You cannot abstract it from the world. Three-year-olds have not the slightest difficulty understanding this and then extending it. They can talk about other things Harold could do with his crayon, right? Not a problem. So joint attention and blending have been around forever. And this is an example of our general research project, the ways in which uh, highly successful multimedia, highly successful multimodal operation are successful because they're exploiting capacities that have been part of the human imagination for a long time. They look, they look new. If we're looking at them historically, it looks as if they're new stuff. And indeed, in many ways, technologically, they are new. And indeed, there are constructions that go with the TV news, just as there are constructions that arise in language that are new, that have new patterning, right? But at a cognitive level, they are tapping into deep um, existing cognitive operations that we routinely study. Now, I'm only going to talk for another two minutes, and then I'm going to stop. Another big topic that I would talk about is the way in which we conceive of the world in terms of small narratives, small stories. This is a really basic way of understanding. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, you can read lots of people. One of the people you could read is Mark Turner, The Literary Mind, 1986. And storytelling, given that we've got language and multimodal communication, is a big part of, of culture right now. Uh, you know, there's no reason that you would have to organize the world this way. Quantum mechanics does not organize the world in terms of s story, right? This is creating agents that have goals, that interact with each other is an extremely basic way for human to understand the world, even of things that are inanimate. And to make little compressions, little sto compressed stories that they can use to hold on. But I'm not talking about that one. You can go read about that one. The second one that I would talk about as an example is counterfactuality. Uh, most of what you think about is not about what's here and what you're thinking about, what you're in. Mark Twain said, life does not consist mainly of facts and happening. It consists mainly of the storm of thoughts that is forever blowing through one's head. So look around this room, and you, you got it? You got everything? Great. I'm not going to tell you something that, that you just didn't see, right? Barack Obama is not in this room. Okay, now it's a different room. Now you know something about this room that you hadn't thought about before, right? When you open the, kitchen, the refrigerator door and you say, there's no milk. You can see it right there. There's the no milk. Our, our language gives us this ability to hang on to um, counterfactuals. 
and many of our smallest expressions are about counterfactuality. So the word safe in English uh, means the following. It means I want you to build a big network that's got a, a big particular counterfactual. So why doesn't it mean something simpler? Well, I can say the beach is safe and the child is safe and I can mean the same thing. If safe predicated something of the subject, then those two sentences should not mean the same thing. But they can mean exactly the same thing. You say, got a kid, uh, can, you know, but I say, oh, the beach is safe. Or I say, oh, no, no, the kid is safe. It can mean exactly the same thing. Safe means I want you to construct a space of a situation. I want you to blend it with harm. You figure out how. So in the blend, something gets harmed. I want you to understand that the current space is counterfactual to that blend with harm and then compress the counterfactual into a feature for this reality and that's safe. So now there's a new property. It's a five space network with a new property emergent in the blend. It's safe says build this kinds of space. Most of language depends upon this. Well, in imagination, you know, I said this thing about when you're in a situation, you don't see what's counterfactual. It's just, it's just right here, right? But in imagination, you can. And the television, um, in, in many, many ways, I've got a long list of these, seems to put into your perceptual fields things that previously would have been available only in imagination or by gestures, right? by multimodality. So for instance, when the TV talks about the counterfactual, they show you the counterfactual. They go and get a clip of something that's very like the thing that didn't happen. And they show it to you. Uh, you'll remember this one. Woman in the hairdresser says, if only I had some shoes. And then they show a shot of a closet full of shoes. She doesn't have any. They're not with her. But in the, you can do that in imagination. I can't do that right here. I can say, I can't say, if only I had some shoes and snap a finger and then I have all these shoes. If you do it in imagination, that's a counterfactual. The television network news has a big set of ways for the weather, for talking about the assessment of culpability and responsibility, of putting this kind of counterfactual, sophisticated counterfactual thinking on screen so that you get it. So, for example, in the I give you this one last clip. In the uh, network analysis of the uh, mass murder event in Norway, it's so hap well, it, it's a fact that the police took an extremely I'm going to make a blend now roundabout way to get there. You, it can only be roundabout if you construct the confounder factual space in which it was more direct, right? And they show you uh, a route that they could have taken. And in fact, they show you this first. See, I, I would have been through all these slides by now if we actually had power. Uh, all these counterfactual constructions, things like, yeah, here we go. They, they show you a map. Notice this is a compression. You can't actually see all this space, but they compress um, the space and they show you. This is the. That's the path the police didn't take. And then they run all the way up to the one that the police did take. 
Now that you have these two, there's a counterfactual between them, and you can compress them. So this one becomes a detour. Or alternatively, this one becomes the direct route. And the, and the TV shows you these things, so you'll get this compression. And of course, what they really want to do is, as Francis Steen uh, explained, argue about the fact that 69 teenagers were being murdered point blank while this boat was trying to get across the water. It was a little inflatable raft. So all these police in, you know, attack gear are overcrowding this little boat. And the news worldwide spends minutes at great cost showing you this boat just sort of limping through the water, starts to sink. They get another boat. They get on it. They finally get there. This event brought down everybody but the prime minister. Why are they spending all this time showing you this boat? It's so that you create the counterfactual. And if you reify the character, or if you, in the, in the blend where they did take the direct route, now 40 people's lives were saved. 40 people are alive in the blend. But the blend is wrong. Who's to blame for this? Who's going to take the fall? And if, so if you look, as you look at the TV news next time you do, and it looks as if they're saying, hey, breaking news, we're going to tell you exactly what's happening, just track, just track what happens. One of the things that you'll see is that they're constructing in this scene of blended joint attention telling you a story. They're constructing counterfactual and hypothetical ranges for the purpose of getting you to stay with them in the analysis of culpability, credit, and blame. I'll stop there. Questions? First, let's thank. I'll post my slides on the web sometime when the power comes back on. Yeah. We do have plenty of time for our questions. Uh, uh, In your studies, did it, other than the obvious sort of trouble with messing with reality, which is what we're doing, was there any really clear evidence that this is messing people up or causing problems other than what you've sort of alluded to so far? I would, I would say that whenever there's a technology that is invented, um, there's always a question of whether this is going to deform some of the ways that we think. So you remember uh, uh, Plato, or rather Socrates, and the Phaedrus is really down on this invention of writing. Doesn't like it all because it's going to mess up your command of memory, right? And there may very well be something to that when you look at the Yugoslavian oral formulaic poets who can go on for, you know, the size of a Bible composing poetry. Or, um, when you look at other cultures that memorize things, where they memorize things by heart, you might take this for granted. You, you might think this is true. It certainly seems to me to be the case that I have now offloaded a ton of memory of actual facts and data and dates and things like that. I don't even try. I just, uh, they're here, right? Um, uh, uh, you, you can be a smarty pants now because you've got an iPhone, right? And you have, so you have not dueling brains, but dueling iPhones. But this was always true when you had your date book. This was always, this was always true. I, I'm, a, I'm not a video kid. I'm a video 
immigrant, digital immigrant. Uh, I, I was early, but still there's, there seems to me to be a tremendous difference in expertise um, between my uh, facility and that of my, of my three children who are uh, teenagers. So uh, I think there are two points. One, these things work in the main because they are using powers of the mind that are um, distinctive or, or highly developed for human beings. They always have been here. We can trace them back. But they're using them in new ways. See, one of the things that I think blending did is at last it made it possible to have culture, to invent new ideas. There are a few species that seem to have a little bit of culture. I'll define culture if you want me to. But it's extremely fragile. It's tied to the here and now. It's about feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. Right? Very, very fragile. Very few things. We, on the other hand, because we can put together these compressed little blends that let us manage huge things and that have emergent structure, we can now invent culture in cultural time instead of biological time. We know how biological evolution invents a new species. It takes forever, hundreds of thousands of years. We can do it on the fly. And so what we would say is we want to celebrate diversity, but the real question for me is why is there any? When you look at other species, there mostly isn't. The lemurs on one side, ringtail lemurs on one side of the hill, are the same as the ringtail lemurs on the other side of the hill, except for like an, an ecological difference, like here's a lake. So they do slightly different. For human beings, you walk over the hill, they got different language, different table manners, different ways to date, all kinds of uh, diversity, right? Where does that come from? Well, we've always, the, having the basic mental operations does not mean you have the cultural knowledge. And cultures smash into each other and there are misunderstandings all the time, not because you have different basic mental operations, but because you don't have the cultural frames that the other person has. So we have always struggled with the question of how do we use our basic mental operations? What's the right investment? How shall, how shall we invest? And this debate of, uh, okay, now we actually have television. We have long-distance blended joint attention. When is this a good thing and when is it a bad thing? Well, those are decisions that cognitive science doesn't really have a lot to say about in the sense that it's a use of a, it's a, use of a mental technology. You, you can do this thing. And so what the culture has to wrestle with is, okay, at what age should what people get to do what things? And what public spaces? So, for instance, I know lots of people who think that these uh, large screens showing the TV in all the lobbies of the hotels, in the bars, in the airports, in this building ought to be illegal, just ought to be banned. It's completely bad for you. It's disrupting human conversation. It's uh, distracting people. It's, it's making you not able to have a human society and so on. Well... Maybe, right? I mean, people have to have that fight. What the, what the cognitive analysis is here to do is to say why that is so immersive, why it works so well, why it is that when you look at it, it doesn't seem like the strangest thing you've ever seen. Now, some of it is, of course, you have to be exposed to it. You have to pick out. You have to learn some of these constructions, but that's just like language, right? You, you have to be exposed to English in order to 
to learn it, to its particular constructions. But the basic mental operations that you have in order to learn a language are common across, uh, across human beings. So it is for things like blended joint attention and for counterfactual thought. We all have it. There are good, there are good blends. There are bad blends. There are blends people don't understand. There are blends they don't. There are things that you can do in television for blended joint attention that people actually don't like. They don't work. They get confused. And they did some of those in the early days of television. The television news has learned how to use the ones that, that really, really work. So I, Francis Steen actually um, is, with his team at UCLA, much concerned to uh, have a kind of critical approach to multimedia and the, the power of TV. And my uh, participation in that is to, is to say, okay, if, if we can have an analysis of why it works, why, uh, why it's effective, what kind of international patterns produce what kind of effect, this might help, and if we can step back from it and review it and help the, have the robots help us analyze things and have a little bit of distance on us, this might help make us a little more critical. Uh, my avenue toward criticism of the media is not so much on the cultural side. I'm a human being. I have that side too, but it's not my professional interest. My professional interest on taking a critical stance on the media is to try to lay bare the cognitive underpinnings that are making it work. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to hear you talk in terms of critical analysis of the media. Um, both in the, the previous talk and in this one, I'm, I'm left sort of grasping, trying to understand what an intersection between this approach to, uh, to doing analysis, uh, how does it intersect with analysis of power, analysis of the representations of, of race, class, gender? I mean, all the things that critical media scholars who, do, who use ideological media criticism have done for so long, mm-hmm. which has an intended outcome, which sounds like what you just said, which is, you know, I'm trying to intervene in people's engagement with this, with this format and get them to think critically about what they're what they're seeing and the impacts that it's having on their mental maps of the world um, has been done through textual analysis for for, for decades. And so I'm just really wondering, what does that intersection look like? Or who is doing work in that space? Right. So I'll try to give a response, but I'll let you have a a follow-up, because this is uh, is really a crucial question. So the first thing to say is that the kind of... uh, the objects of criticism in this kind of approach are many, many more uh, than race, class, gender, demography, certain kinds of power positions. It would include things like, are you using your left hand or your right? Gesture is often called the unmonitored channel because people can't remember very well what gestures were used. And 30 years ago, the notion was, it's superfluous because you can talk on the phone. You don't really need gesture. Where by gesture, I mean the whole body. You know, turning your head, knitting your brows, raising an eyebrow, turning this way for a quotative, things like that. That old view is dead. Uh, gesture is crucial to the kinds of control, evaluation, positioning, um, uh, power relationships. But it hadn't previously been studied. Now, there are people who do 
experiments and empirical study on the way in which gesture positions and evaluates. So, for example, in the presidential debates, um, in the last two sets, we had one right-hander and one left-hander, and they were on different parties at different times. So, this kind of approach, this is work by Daniel Casasanto, has taken the multimodal and looked at the relationship between right and left in indicating valuation. So, in language, you, you almost always have to use the right for good, right? Uh, right-hand helper, uh, dexterous, uh, right. There are political uses, but the right is, uh, you know, a left-handed compliment. These are very, very common. So that a, even a left-hander will use right-handed language, or the language of the right hand in a way to evaluate. But the question is, what do they actually do in gesture? And Casasanto's conclusion is that when the right, because he's got this view that if you have different bodies, you might have different cognition. And he has an elaborate study showing that the right-handers tend to signal the good things with the right hand, and the left-handers tend to signal the good things with the left hand, and bad things on the opposite side for both of them. It's a big, it's a big, now, we didn't know that before. But here we are watching a presidential debate, and you can imagine that Sale could do an analysis of the intonational patterns and things like this. What we're talking about here are the ways in which below the horizon of observation, before, below something that you could just see, and non-textually, right, non-linguistically, you are getting a multimodal communication operation and set of constructions that people are responsive to and that actually seem to have an effect, but that they're unaware of. Now, you could take uh, that as a model for critical, um, uh, for a critical stance about sort of anything. Notice, for instance, that the news tends to begin with big, negative, calamitous things. If you look at the network news, which we have, and you do story segmentation, you see that there are certain patterns in the news hour or the news half hour, right? So this comment back here about is it, is it giving you a problem, one of the things that the news is very good at doing is grabbing your attention. And they have various kinds of routines, like suspense, like where they began and so on, to grab and hold your attention, right? So one might have a criticism about that that is not a matter of any particular race, class, gender, power relationship, but just a relationship of the media elite to the audience. And do an analysis and introduce people to the way in which the news is structured so as to manipulate them. Some of it they see, some of it they don't. On the uh, proposal that knowledge of how this is happening could give them a critical distance, right? So criticism in this kind of analysis from the right-left-handers to the attention mechanisms of network news, criticism here means trying to create for the analyst a distance and a set of techniques to unearth constructions of communication that are effective and important and powerful 
but that we had not previously seen. That's, that's the basic notion of criticism in this. It's sort of critical thinking. How can we get a better critical distance? How can we have uh, more tools to throw at this to find patterns that otherwise we wouldn't find? Yes? That last point is uh, perfect and one I agree with about the clips, and I'll get back to it in a second. Uh, but let's go back to the, the first bit. Um, it is true that watching a TV is uh, declining in your house on right where you, you get ratings from meals and, and so on. But uh, Pew Research did an elaborate study um, finding that, sure, for sitting in front of the TV and, and, and watching, that's 55 and older. But that the teenagers, the millennials, the X generation are exposed to these clips of TV network news all the time. Two-thirds of the searches on YouTube, and as this study reports, I can't stand behind it, but it's Pew Research, two-thirds were for finding news clips. right? And they calculate the number of hours and the massive exposure. It may well be, I, I find it hard to believe myself, if it's a tenth, it's already, if it's a twentieth, it's already. That's all YouTube users, that's not millennials. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It is. But still, two thirds, uh, where the, the millennials, the X, and the teenagers are the ones who are, account for the bulk of uh, the YouTube. Anyway, I just refer, I, I can't stand behind the research, but we do have a range of these studies. And I'm going to say in a minute, that's not the point. The, it, it may be that the fact that people are not sitting in front of the TV is a, a red herring, right? They may be getting a lot, of, a lot of news. Now I want to say this doesn't really matter to me. And that may seem strange. It doesn't matter to me actually at all. Why doesn't it matter to me? I'm a linguist and a cognitive scientist. What I want to know is how the human mind works. And mostly what I study... See, I'm going to get a button that says, I don't care what it says. Because here's what I'd describe. If I were to come back in three weeks and we were to have a conversation, we wouldn't know what it was going to be about. Maybe something would have happened. Right? 
But what I do know is that you have all of the extremely complicated linguistic constructions, and so do I, to understand what we would say as a matter of communication and thought. And I want to know what you know now, what's in your head now and in our heads that makes it possible for us to do this. The content is much less important to me. What I want to know is what are the linguistic and communicative constructions that we already know that make it possible for us to do this. And it's, it is the case that for television network news, mostly these kinds of constructions that I showed you are things that the whole population has. The, the, the extra thing I would say in agreeing with you is, and we've written a little bit about this, the difference in experiencing the whole TV news, if anybody ever did that, you know, eating from a TV, eating a TV dinner as opposed to going in and getting a snack and taking a break and talking on the phone and floating back in, I don't know. That would be, on our own analysis, a very different experience than picking out isolated clips because there is a story segmentation. It's like reading a book of poems that have been arranged to go in a certain order. Um, there's a dynamic um, experience of that that you wouldn't be getting by, uh, by getting the clips. So most of the constructions, the multimedia constructions that I'm analyzing are not these large-scale sorts of things. I am analyzing, as you saw here, the clips, the things that happen in a little, you know, here's 30 seconds. What's going on? How does this work? What do you know? Why does it work? Why do different TV networks converge upon it, right? Francis Steen and a couple of his students are the ones who are doing the story segmentation uh, large-scale stuff. And I think it's entirely correct to say we're not, we're not really sure, even though it's there and the networks are putting it together, we're not really sure that anybody's actually getting that. And these, and these things would always be, for me, empirical questions, right? Um, it, it, uh, it, it might be that the uses of the TV news are changing every few years and, and that it's not the same as it used to be and it's not influential in the same sorts of ways. Could be perfectly right. My project is to, is to understand in the same sort of ways that when I say he floated the boat to me, you know that there was motion, that he actually pushed it, it went along a path and the manor was floating, even though float is not a cause motion verb. When I say Kathy painted the wall white, you know it doesn't mean she painted the wall because it was white, although it was white, because she's white, while she was dreaming, but why not? I just said Kathy painted the wall white. It's because it's the resultative construction, it's a clausal construction in English, and you know that that last ad ad uh, adjective is best construed as a result for an object by an agent. So if I say something like, no zucchini tonight, I boiled the pan dry. Notice I didn't boil. I didn't boil the pan, right? What boiled? Something, you don't know. You don't know what I did. I could turn this. But what you know is I performed an action where the boiling of the water comes in as a very strange verb there with the consequence that the pan became dry. This is what it means to know the resultative construction in English, or the cause-motion construction. It's what it means to know what to do with the word safe. So I'm a linguist. What I want to do is expand that kind of approach, that kind of analysis of what are the little tiny form-meaning constructions that you have 
that make you a native speaker of English. I want to expand that to include, since human communication has always been multimodal, to include gestures, diagrams, music, sound, and there are a lot of people in the world who are working on these things. But we don't have so far, they're incipient efforts, we don't have a multimodal constructicon. A constructicon for language is the set of all the form meaning constructions you have in the language and how they can be combined. And you have fabulous amounts of knowledge about this that you can't articulate. This is what linguists study. I want to generalize that. My, my contribution is to generalize that sort of below the horizon of observation analysis of the linguistic constructicon, which we do study, to the, multimedia, uh, the multimodal constructicon. And my sandbox is Red Hen. Yeah, yeah so, I'm, so I'm wondering, um, to what extent is it important that what we're talking about right now is news then? And I mean, in particular, it seems a couple of ways you could break that out. First off, is the, the focus video news, or do we get some of the same linguistic features and constructs in print media and that sort of thing? So newspaper news and that sort of thing. We sure do. So and one similarly, of similarly, other media like that isn't news. And what would it look like to have a news program that's not using? these constructs you talk about. Even cinema verite would have you know, something that the camera's focused on instead of other things. So there are implied counterfactuals that will be built into that. So uh, two things. One, it will sort of clarify my position or my project to say the only reason I'm looking at TV network news, I mean, as opposed to something else, is because of Section 108 of the, copy, of the US Copyright Act. I cannot record, study, loan, uh, anything else. I, I now, it's pretty loose. So like David Letterman and uh, other late night shows qualify because the monologue often opens with news. And we talked to the University of California lawyers who are our lawyers. They're adamant about this, right? Take it to the, just go ahead, fight it. We're going to win. Um, uh, there's a saying in Los Angeles, or actually throughout the entertainment industry, it's a little more vulgar than this, but it's uh, sort of don't mess with the mouse. The mouse is Disney. Disney has got a fabulous uh, set of lawyers, and they will come after you. But not even Disney is going to touch Section 108 of the U.S. Copyright Act. It's very elaborate. So I can create a digital sandbox of multimodal communication out of the news. I can suck it down from the satellites from France or Afghanistan. We can record it here. We can store it. And so this is my sandbox because I can get it. Because I can get it and the lawyers say I can use it. I'll get right to you. The other thing I want to say is absolutely. Why would I want to be in this sandbox? The answer is because it is doing things and slightly extending things um, that are analogous to things that have been done in other media. So, for instance, this implied view in the TV network news. Welcome back, or as Shepard always says. And now you know the news for November 29th, 2012. Thanks for inviting us in. Thanks for letting us in. This, in, this implied view, it's all over the place in literature. It's different because the affordances are a little different. But when Huck Finn is talking, there's an implied you, and Mark Twain, or maybe a higher implied writer, 
and the higher implied reader are both looking down on this implied writer and or implied speaker and implied you. Same thing in a modest proposal, same thing in all kinds of other things. This use of existing language projecting down into a compressed blend to guide what is a very complicated narrative uh, network of, of agency is all across all of these things. Uh, and I, I have actually in here a lot, of, a lot of these parallels. But my interest is in the operations and the emergence of the uh, structures, not in TV network news per se. Quantity as you want if it's for scholarly use, right? For fair use. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Fair use is a, is a different part of the law. Fair it is, it but is. you're not uh, recording things and then sharing them with massive other people. Yeah, we are. Okay. And, but for scholarly use? Red Hen is going to be shared with the entire University of California system. Now, here's what we can't do under Section 108. Okay. Uh, we can't actually compete in the moment with the provider. So there, there will be a delay. It always takes the robots two or three days to do this, right? We can't have an instantaneous stream, put it up and sell it. We can charge fees that cover our services and all kinds of things like that. We, uh, um, we, we cannot uh, record entertainment and provide it for a fee. Now we can do it for fair use, but notice that fair use is something like fair use on a poem is you don't use the whole poem. So you can run into terrible, I mean, there are fights about it, right? You've got uh, a Milton, Pat, well, you've got a, Keat, a, a poem by Keats that's 17 stanzas long. You can't publish the whole thing in your article. That doesn't qualify for fair use. I can record five, eight hours of television proceedings in the court, the whole thing, no problem. Not a, so fair use for snippets for fair use and scholarly purposes and Section 108 of the U.S. Copyright Act are two different ways to give you some kind of cover. Red Hen relies on the uh, Section 108 of the U.S. Copyright Act, and uh, according to the lawyers of the University of California, this is not UCLA, this is the University of California legal team. That's the one that, in their view, is, remember I said we're having this big fight about intellectual property and plus, but that's the one, in, in their view, that's, that's bulletproof. And what that means is I can do it for the news because Section 108 says, notwithstanding anything else, the recording of audiovisual uh, news broadcasts for li libraries and ar archives to loan. The model is you get it, you loan it, right? Um, no problem. And so that's what we're using. If, if you were interested in applying this type of technique to entertainment content, for example, you would, could certainly do it. You would just have to change the way that you display the content when you're uh, to, to the public when people are doing queries. There I are projects that do that, like Critical Commons, that have solid, you know, tight legal defense uh, from the University of Southern California lawyers I, around the country. I agree with you. Presented. Right. I agree with you. Because they have but um, material that sort of surrounds right. it. Uh, it's it, a context it of presentation. Use, right. right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We don't have to have any transformative uses for, we don't have to stand on that plank. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the things, sort of uh, technological transfer, of course, all the actual techniques for analyzing the multimodal communication the tagging of the, uh, so for instance, here's something. We have all this closed captioning. 
it's pretty easy to, to get closed captioning these days because of speech to text um, robotic you know I use dragon dictate uh, but there are better ones right there are better ones and it's getting better all the time especially if the voice that if it's very high quality audio only one person is speaking at a time it's the voice that's been trained to be in a certain kind of register so speech to text for certain kinds of movies could be pretty good um, but if there's an actual transcript of it uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign has spent a year the whole team spent a year working on a robotic way an algorithm that syncs the closed captioning the speech to text with the actual transcript the transcripts are sometimes overcorrected, so you don't want to just use the transcript. But the important thing is you need the timestamp if you're going to search it. The transcripts don't come with a timestamp. The audiovisual does. So you give that to caption. You find the best spot for the match in the transcript. Bang, in goes that timestamp. Now when you search this thing, up comes not only the closed caption, but right next to it the transcript and anything else you want, like the text fields, that are in the on-screen representation, or, 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 or anything else you want. We just build it in independent files, and the browser or whatever else you're using renders that information arrayed as you, as you prefer. Tagging, analysis, one of the things the big team is working on um, computer vision recognition of gestures. Faces is, of course, a big one, but other kinds of gestures. One of the things we might want to see is how often does this kind of pointing gesture go with that kind of linguistic construction? What are you going to do? Watch a million hours of stuff to find out? No, you release the robots on it. They find it. They pony it all up and do the analysis, and then you see. So the point is, and this is sort of you know, back pocket, all of the actual technological and theoretical machinery that we're trying to develop in Red Hen in the sandbox of the TV news could, you know, mutatis mutandis, just be handed over to people who are working on other things. And indeed, we are doing this. Uh, one of, not the Spanish capture station, but one of the Spanish uh, research groups we've got works on uh, film. They work on cinema. Uh, they have put together a technique, uh, a, a, a software technique called a package called Tagetti. We're incorporating some of that. They're getting the things back that we want. All those people who do gesture analysis, the gesture scholars who record, like on a flip, they record actual people gesturing to each other when they're talking, right? In principle, the speech to text, the registration, the timestamp, the computer vision of the gestures, blah, blah, blah. All of that technology could just transfer to the people who want to look at other material. As I say, mutatis mutandis. So uh, in a way, what we're, what we're doing is, I mean, there are real benefits to analyzing the news, but quite independent of those benefits. Uh, we're trying to use Red Hen as a sandbox, as a laboratory, for developing a technological and theoretical and statistical techniques then in principle could be turned loose on any audiovisual recording. More? 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 Have you looked at the recent uh, Internet Archive recently released a full uh, transcript searchable uh, tool which shares some similarities about what you're doing? 
We're in, we're in very close negotiation with them. Yeah. Um, the, some of their technology is not what we use, and we've got a bunch of wells and whistles that they don't use. But they've got a lot of stuff. And uh, one, it, it's just a, it's a question of what's the best thing to do. Um, it doesn't seem to be the case yet, although the lawyers are working on it, that we can simply hand our whole... By the way, in this archive, you know, we're talking about more than a billion words of captions and more than three billion words of transcripts, all searchable, right here, from this laptop wirelessly to UCLA. We can search these things, up it comes. You want to find a certain linguistic pattern? I'm a linguist. I love it, right? Three billion words that I can search now in a variety of languages. I love... It doesn't, nobody's yet seen a clear way to just handing the Internet Archive all, all of our 210,000 hours of recording. But maybe we can. Do you, well, do you have open APIs for your tool? I mean, that would be one way. You don't have to actually hand the archive over, but you could let people build other interfaces, do queries on your database, that kind of stuff. And more and more and more. Um, no, we have not built an open API for uh, this, but it's a, thing, it's a thing that we could do. This is a highly funded um, project, Red Hen. Most of the funding is for uh, the computer scientists to figure out how to uh, make these kinds of compatibilities. Right. So it, one of the things that our group has knocked is how to put the captions into registration with the transcripts. They've, they've got the algorithms. It's all open source stuff. That kind of thing, you know, but that's just the kind of thing that we want to do. The uh, Internet Archive um, offers some really interesting things uh, that we didn't know about um, until we started to talk to them. So, for example, um, lots and lots of historic news, like Walter Cronkite on the JFK assassination, or, 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 or. Tons of stuff is actually on YouTube. And there's a uh, Google speech-to-text transcript and sometimes there's an authorized transcript, which people have connected. And we looked into the software, or we looked into the HTML, and actually we have a little uh, algorithm that goes and finds automatically wh whether there's this link or this link or both. So all we have to do is take the link for the thing on YouTube, and the robot can find some of that too. All we have to do is put the link in a list and it doesn't even matter if we've got duplicates or anything because the algorithm understands whether it's already got it. And it just at night goes through the list, goes to YouTube, pulls over the news, and pulls over the speech-to-text transcript and the approved transcripts and puts them all into the database uh, so that the, the this thing started for Watergate. Uh, gee, we need, the media are so important, we need some kind of analysis here. But it was a ton of stuff that couldn't be searched. It was on paper and on video and things like that. That has not all been digitized, although one of our projects would be to see whether we could digitize it. The digital part starts is 2005 to now. But in fact, through a variety of means, we've been able to capture a bunch of stuff, bring it back and get transcripts. Now, I have to say, why capture this stuff? Why not just get it from the websites for the TV stations? Because it's almost useless. They throw away the closed captioning. They don't keep it. It's gone. You have to capture it on the fly. 
in order to get the closed captioning in almost, now you can get the transcript from CNN, but the TS file that is broadcast, uh, DVB-T, uh, contains the feed for the captions. And, and I'm a linguist. Without the captions, I can't search this stuff. What am I going to do? Watch it? Actually, there are visual ways to search it. I want to know all scenes in which there was a tank in November on these networks. And you can release the robot, and it will go find it, finds them visually, not, uh, not through text. But that's not the low-hanging fruit that I love, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah so, so you actually have to capture it on the fly. So when I went to Norway, here, you know, here's this event that's going on. I went to Enerco, and I said, so we want to get this. And they said, oh, it's great. We have it. Um, just come up to Moiran. I don't know if you know Moiran is in the Arctic Circle. It's way, way, way north. I was in Oslo. And we'll open up the studio, and you can watch it. And I explained, no, I don't really want to sit and watch it. I want the broadcasts. So we went through the whole thing. And yes, they do have the broadcasts. Uh, and they will sell them to you at a very high rate. The Swedes, by the way, want $2,000 per hour. For <laughs> and, and they don't have the closed captions. So it's just not, it's, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't work for us. But there are little pockets of news around the world going back before 2005 where the digital stream with closed captioning or with speech-to-text um, is available. And, you know, marking everything so you know what the source is, we are robotically ingesting that into the system, too. I wanted to ask if there were differences between, sort of, you know, interesting differences between subgenres within news programs. Because you talked about the one cross-cultural coverage of a particular incident in Norway. Right. But, um, but it seems like, for instance, like the weather Absolutely. Know, is a very fascinating segment. We have like the weather it yes. as another non-referential pronoun of saying, you know, it's, it's snowing, it's raining. You know, what is that? What's what's it? What does it mean? Um, yeah, and then also the, the green screen or blue screen, you know, like a sort of early canonical use of that in gesturing a very a particular right. aspect. So, yeah. Exactly. And I am drawn particularly to these weather reports. I'm starting with a student to make a study of these now. And the reason is that the weather's all about the future, right? So it has to be hypothetical. It may be counterfactual. So they have wonderful constructions, some of which I can show to you, for imagining the future that isn't here yet. And in those cases, the language really does go with the gestures and the diagrams. So I'll give you one example, just one, since we just had a hurricane. You might remember it. Um, when they show the possible track of the hurricane up from the Caribbean through Florida. They will show you, oh, it could go this way, it could go this way, and it could go this way, right? Now, the hurricane is, for the most part, not getting any bigger, but they have this technique of showing you a kind of expanding, I have it right here, I've got a whole talk on these kinds of weather construction, a kind of expanding cone. Now, What's expanding? Well, the one dimension of the, or one uh, line of the cone is showing you a path of the hurricane. But the width of this expanding cone is, is getting wider, right? And everybody understands that that is a measurement of the extent of our ignorance. It's an epistemic representation. So in the same... Uh, visual, 
diagram, you have one c component that's actually space-time and a real event, the weather it, and an orthogonal component which is epistemic, right? Which is a great, it's just really, really a great uh, way of doing it. In language, of course, we use things, by the way, there, there are epistemic markers, diptychs in lots and lots of languages, not English, where you have to mark the source, morphologically mark the source of something as this is hearsay, I got this from this person. I in English, we have things like reportedly, purportedly, allegedly. These are not, these are sort of on the side, but they still are epistemic. Well, this is a case where the visual diagram is doing what we don't do in English, but they do do in a lot of the world's languages, which is they're marking the very thing, which is the path of the hurricane with an epistemic deictic to indicate uh, the status of this knowledge, uh, as it were. So, I mean, if you think of it, there you all are. We're talking about the next three days. It's not here. I want you to have a big scope and think into the future, but you have to be able to hold onto it. So the weather is kind of, the, these weather reports are masterpieces of these little compressed blends of stuff that give you something that you can carry around and expand uh, to make sense of. I think this might actually become a, uh, a dissertation for one of my students. Another dissertation, free to a good home. In, in uh, gesture to dissertation topic, free to a good home, we, had, we now have all this recording of stand-up comics on the late night TV. Now, stand-up comic is, um, from the point of view of research methods, pretty interesting. Because they come out on stage, and unlike a TED talk or something, the camera doesn't bounce around and show you everybody in the studio. Mainly, it's just on the stand-up comic. They usually don't have any props, except maybe a microphone, their glasses. Mostly, they don't have any props. And you get the whole thing. And it's practiced, it's honed, they know just what they're doing. It's very sophisticated. There's a studio audience, and they're playing with the studio audience, but they know that the big audience is also the TV audience, so they're doing things that have to work for both of those audiences. And it's not just a laugh track. It's an, usually an action. And they're using gestures all the time. Now, you'd say, well, of course, they're practiced. Yes, they are. But the question then is, if you're going to be an expert gesturer for humor, what are the gestures that they do and work. And for these stand-up comics, in many cases, we have hundreds of hours of the same comic. And we have lots and lots. It's a very isolated little genre. Um, you don't see anything else going on. Well, if what you wanted to do is study and the study of practice gestures, um, in, indeed, most politicians who know what they're doing know that there are certain kinds of gestures you don't use, that if you're on TV you have to gesture more widely than you do if you're actually in person because the screen is small, all these kinds of things they're trained in. But if you want to see what that expert uh, sector of stand-up comics is doing with voice and gesture in order to get that effect, and it's a very powerful effect. You're making the audiences all across the United States <coughs> laugh. Well, we've got it, and you can parse it. We can, you can search it, you can recognize the gestures, and you write your dissertation. <laughs> that easy. <laughs> Does anyone uh, need another dissertation? Or have another <laughs> another question? Yeah. Uh, I produce a lot of video content, just sort of from the other side, almost from the anchor perspective. Yeah. I produce a lot of content. Uh, I interview a ton of people. Sometimes I'm in the shop, sometimes I'm not. 
there are people who get it, yeah. who get how to talk about something, right. and there are people who just do not, and right. you cannot coach that out of that corner. Can you cast a little scientific light on that? Is that just their <laughs> blockheads and they don't get it, or is there something else going on there? Now, now that's a really sophisticated uh, topic because the one that I'm mainly working on is how, do, how does the viewer get it, right? The anchor or the production team, like you, has to be holding and working with a huge mental network that includes the actual performance that's being filmed and the changes in it for how to get into that template. So you know that there are certain kinds of shots that won't work, there are certain kinds of gestures that won't work, right? Um, and knowing that, you can filter your behavior. You can do this somewhat in, on the cutting room floor. You can just edit things out. And they used to have to do this in radio. They'd say, stop, start again, at, right? Because they were professionals. And uh, you find this across all media. So for instance, one of the things the Red Hen Lab does is we run very sophisticated video conferencing for all of our research groups around the world. We conduct research over the video conference. And it's the case when we bring in somebody new that's not used to, used to this, they are importing too completely their behavior from face-to-face -face conversation. And they just do things that other people have intuitively learned are not going to work, right, in that kind of, of scene. And those scenes, we can, you know, we can coach them out of it. But if we can't coach them out of it, we just mute their microphone or we, you know, <laughs> we, we stop them from, you know, and, and, until they sort, of, they sort of get it. Now, I've gone through this. Um, so, and there are professional coaches that come in and say, listen, don't look at the camera. I just want you, I'm just here. All of my questions are going to be cut out. They're not actually going to see my questions. I'm just doing this so that you will use a familiar form of talking, which is looking, the camera's here, you're looking over there. I'm going to ask you something. You've got built-in question and answer. I ask you the question, and the one thing I ask you to do is don't rely on my question to include the information because my question is going to be cut out. This, take this as a prompt, and then you go. Pretend you're answering the question, but not the way. It, okay, some people can get that, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a matter, as I say, that making these blends can take some time. So uh, they have all these lovely little, here's somebody who can't get it. They have these lovely experiments with kids on blended joint attention. You know the game Battleship, where here's your, okay, where you can see yours and they can see theirs, but you can, you know, you can only see parts of different things. So they have one kid who's five years old looking at his side, and they know the person's on the other side and can't see their size. And the kid, uh, kid A says, look at this and points at it. Now wait, wait, wait. And the other kid says, you mean this? And this kid says, no. <laughs> right? What, what, what was he thinking? So what I would say is, you know, with enough training, people can kind of get it. But all of, many, many, many of these kinds of blends take a certain amount of experience. Like, you know, the square root of negative one, it, I. It took the best mathematicians three and a half centuries to come to terms with that. They used it, but they just weren't, 
happy about it, it, it didn't make sense to them, so on. And that's one of the things that we study in blending is what are the ones that come up immediately, that people get immediately, even though they're complicated blends, and what are the ones that don't, they never get, and what are the ones that take training and, and, and time. And I think you, this is a case where there are certain people who get not the, not the TV viewing audience blend for you out there, but the I'm going to take what we're doing here and I'm not going to produce a recording of that. I'm going to edit it into something and I need you to help me, the anchor, sort of make certain that there's something I can edit and make it so that 95% of what we're filming I don't have to throw out, right? And it can be tough. I've, I've, I've seen the real professionals interviewers and production teams, real professionals, and I've seen them various times get quite frustrated at some people, right? The thing you don't seem to be able to say, do is say, I told you not to do that, because then it just makes people uptight and do it again. I'm going to push a little bit further on yeah. this question, because it seems like there's a real tension between the idea that you're uh, understanding some type, almost with mathematical precision, an underlying uh, way in which the medium itself works, but at the same time we're talking about production practices as well as reception practices that are really culturally specific. So the multiple visual languages that people develop over time as they engage with the technology of filmic production, of editing, of creating uh, metaphors and mechanisms. And um, you know, a really simple example would be the screen goes all wavy and you get a little sound and you know that that's memory. Right? So that's a cultural construction about what a particular visual device means, which isn't universal, doesn't come from human experience, yeah. comes from a particular you know, set of producers and artists uh, who develop it at a moment in time and then becomes uh, you know, spread throughout the culture. And then as the cultural industries globalize, the locally specific possible alternative forms of visual language might get steamrolled or eliminated in your case, whereas beforehand you might have had uh, you know, multiple localized or regionalized visual languages. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear what, how, how you think about that piece of the problem. All of that is completely right. I only wish I could put it so articulately. It's completely right. So let me clarify the stance. Um, once you have blending, it doesn't mean that you have the products of blending. On the contrary. Cultures have to spend tremendous amount of energy producing those products. Some of those products are constructions in a particular language. English has only been here a few hundred years. People have had blending for at least 50,000 years, I think, right? All of the work to produce all of those things culturally, which is culturally specific and only arises in certain moments, the invention of the hammer, uh, the understanding of the Q&A period, visual representation. All of that actually has to be produced by the culture using basic mental operations that are actually universal, or so I argue. I, I don't think it's very difficult uh, to argue it, but one of the problems we have relative to other species is this means that very frequently we don't know how to get our feeding, our feet, our footing with other people because we're missing all of the culturally, or many of the culturally constructed products. So I'll just give you a tiny example. When I first went to Norway and started watching the news, there are various times when I thought that the 
show must have ended, and I didn't understand. Because the commercial break went on much longer, like three times longer than would ever happen here. Or at least for primetime TV, right? Okay, I didn't have it. I didn't know how to inter. I just something like duration. I didn't have the right range and fit it. And I gradually learned. Now, this is, of course, exactly what children do when they're learning languages. This is, of course, exactly what they're doing when they're learning dining patterns, how to dress, all the fashion. So I was raised on the beaches of Southern California. People came and visited me. I was, uh, you know, in the beach all the time. I didn't go to high school. I went to the beach, right? And there in Del Mar on 15th Street, people were walking around wearing what other people regarded as basically nothing and would construe this in certain ways. And so I was forever telling tourists who came from you know, New Jersey, that doesn't mean what you think it means. And it's difficult for them, of course, because... So what I'm working on are sort of two things. One, basic mental operations and how they operate. And I, would, I wouldn't say with mathematical precision. The brain has 10 to the 11 neurons with, on average, 10 to the 4 connections. That's 10 to the 15 connections in your head. That's 10,000 times as many stars as people think are in the, as astronomers think, are in the Milky Way. It's a massive, very large-scale operation, and it's not out, blending is not algorithmic. From the same inputs, you can get different blends. It's is not an algorithmic process. That doesn't mean we can't we can't study it computationally. But I'm looking at the principles by which those mental operations work, and how can we investigate them empirically. Even sometimes, how can we investigate them experimentally? And then I want to look at particular cultural constructions. And the one I, ones I want to look at in this case of the TV network news are the ones that have new structure, but it doesn't seem to give, for the viewers, doesn't seem to give anybody any trouble. So, for example, in the real world, I cannot move you by looking like that. You don't just suddenly jump over there, right? But because in the blend you map your eye onto the camera, since there can be different cameras and the anchor can look from here to there, suddenly there is this new feature in television network news that your viewpoint can go from there to there under my control because I look like this and now the camera shoots this way. right? And so it's used as, I mean, it's not changing the, the implied you that they're looking at, but it is a sort of metaphoric indication of now we're moving to a new topic. Now, when I'm talking to you, there is a thing called the memory glance in gesture, and there are things where I sort of indicate a new topic by looking away and looking back. Well, if we were going to talk about you know something important along those lines, I, but I have to come back to you, right? That gets adjusted in the TV, so now if I want to talk about a new topic, I, I don't look back. I just look like this, and now I'm talking to you like this, and it's perfectly fine. And people have no trouble with that. That's the kind of thing that keeps me up at nights. Why is it the things that are that you should, if you just take, well, I'm abstracting from my experience, right? Take these things that you have no experience of, in fact, are not possible in your before distance technology or things like this, and bam, people seem to understand them immediately. Here's another one. One thing you can't do visually is zoom. Now, you can focus, you can change your focus, and you can walk towards something and it tends a larger angle over your field and you walk away and it tends something smaller. 
What we can't do is what a camera does, and that is because it's got two lenses, it can stay in the same place and you know it's in the same place, and it can change the field of vision. It can, it can zoom. Okay, now because your eye has been mapped onto the camera, the TV network news routinely zooms you in on something, and you understand that the camera, which was like on a mountain or something like that, is staying right here. Now in the TV network news, you have no difficulty understanding. You can't zoom in real life. Now you understand that you can zoom on the TV network news uh, perceptually. And these things go together with linguistic examples. So you're one connection of the kind of thing that I've actually published. There's a thing uh, called the uh, proximal plus distal construction um, in English. And an example of that is he now saw that it would be impossible. Now, now is proximal. It's right here. It's where we are. Saw is past. So it's distal. And it's not always for, for time. It just means distal. So I can use the past tense for things that are less likely. For, I can use the past for things that are in the future, but it can be. So if I say to you about a picnic we're, we're planning to take tomorrow, if it rains tomorrow, uh, we'll eat inside. Okay, it's, it's present tense for the future, right? If I say, if it rained tomorrow, we'd eat inside. Now I've used the past for the future. The difference is not time. The difference is now you know that I, that the first one was kind of neutral about whether or not it was rain. Now you think, I think, it's not going to rain. And if I say, oh, if it had rained tomorrow, uh, we would have eaten inside, right? And now I don't think it's going to happen at all because I looked at the weather report, right? These are three different tenses for um, the, the, the tense distals are indicating a farther distance. I'm taking a more negative stance along this linear scale. Okay. This construction is analyzed by Wally Chafe and uh, Kiki Nikiforidu. Arises in scenes of narration. And it works like this. The narrator has a certain viewpoint. And it, from the narrator's scene, spaces are being set up and possibilities and the meaning is being laid out. And in one of those mental spaces, there is a consciousness or an ego that is having experiences. And... What you want is the, a, a blend of the viewpoints, as uh, Nikiforido analyzes it. So you get the architectonic parts of the viewpoint from the narrator, but the viewpoint on the experiences and their feeling close up from the viewpoint of the consciousness that is having that experience. So you say, he now saw, and the saw is for the narrator and the now is for the consciousness inside that scene. She shows, by the way, in a review of the British National Corpus and a lot of sports writing, this is not at all restricted to fiction. It's very common in everyday kinds of stuff. One of the most interesting things is when the narrator is, has an identity connector to the consciousness in the past, I now realized I wouldn't be able to do that, right? Okay. Well, I wondered, hmm, because Nikki Foridu says it's as if while maintaining the position of the viewpoint of the narrator for the purposes of orchestrating, you're zooming in on the experiences of the uh, consciousness in the past. Okay, So I immediately went and looked and read him for all of these kinds of things. And what you find is 
although people, you know, anchors just use the linguistic construction all the time, and they use it in documentaries all the time, that in fact, when they, when they have the production, when they want the production values to be good, um, they very frequently zoom in or do a cut to get closer to that person in the past. But wait, the person in the past isn't here anymore. So what do you do? There are three ways to do it. This is all just empirical. One, you get, if that person's still alive, you get them to reenact. You sit them. Kim now realized that the books were not balancing. So you take the real life Kim, dress her up, put her into the office where she's bound, and, and you zoom in on that one. And she's shaking her head when you zoom in. You get the experiences. Or if there are, there are historic stills, you put them in with a kind of Ken Burns effect, and then you zoom in on that one. And the third one is if you have historic footage, you use that. So I have lots of examples of this that I could show you if we had any power. Um, uh, one of them is Daniel Ellsberg narrating his Pentagon Papers uh, story. So here's Daniel Ellsberg, 77, talking about what he was doing. And the, the audiovisual zooms in, and as you're seeing clips of Presidents Johnson lying and Kennedy lying and Truman lying and everybody lying, um, you see footage of somebody who looks like Ellsberg studying these papers, and it's in montage, right? And you see his fingers going over the lines of the uh, reading this stuff as if he's sort of reading it for the first time. And this is montage, and, the, and so he's got this voiceover talking about the experience and zoom in on the actual, what's supposed to be the actual moment of the experience. And of course, not surprisingly, he uses this proximal plus distal uh, construction. So I, I realize it's only a, a specialist like me that finds these kinds of things to be a goldmine. But um, that's what I mean when I say the linguistic constructions are not one isolated thing and the visual and the auditory and the diagrams, all different isolated things. No, we have a multimodal constructicon, and this is an example of a particular multimodal way of presenting the distal plus proximal um, uh, construction. Now, most people looking at the Pentagon Papers would want to talk about the Vietnam War <laughs> and the political scene at the time. And the, okay. And I confess, I confess that, yes, that's why uh, the Newscape Library of International TV News was originally put together. But it, full disclosure, although I lived through the Vietnam War and I have as many feelings about it as, any, as anybody, uh, my professional interest is in it as, uh, uh, or is in these things as a sandbox, a laboratory for actually investigating what it is that people know. And just as you say, they know different things in different cultures using the same mental operations. Well, let's thank Mark Turner again for the illumination. Thank you. The illumination. For the light show. And uh, if the reception had been canceled...